when Jesus told the people in Jerusalem during the feast there, not to judge based on outward appearances, but rather with righteous judgment. He was talking about them stumbling over the fact that he was uneducated. He was talking about their denial that anybody was trying to kill him. And after he said that, the response of the crowds was to immediately begin discussing who exactly this Jesus is. Judging based on outward appearances that he came from Galilee and thus making it impossible for him to be the Messiah in their minds. In our text this morning, Jesus responds by once again pointing back to his own father, reminding them, stating that he was sent by the father. And central in John's narrative, of course, is the question of who will believe or what it looks like to believe. And what will the result be for those who believe as opposed to those who do not truly put their faith in him? And what we see here is a discussion briefly in a a sort of uh, hidden sort of way in Jesus' words, but explained further by John, that the result for those who believe is that they will be given the Holy Spirit. And so what we see in this passage that we're about to read is Jesus teaching us about the Trinity, about who God is. So we're going to be looking some at the Trinity, some at uh, the specifics of this promise Jesus gives that those who believe will receive the Holy Spirit. Please turn to John chapter 7. We're going to be reading verses 25 through 44. John 7, beginning in verse 25. Please stand for the reading of God's word. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he's speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to seize him. And no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, When the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me, 
and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he said, You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So who is Jesus? John is spending his whole book trying to explain to us who this Jesus is and what it means for us to believe in him. And one of the things that he focuses on at the very beginning is that Jesus is the Word. That Jesus, and that the Word was God, and was with God. And so you've got discussion throughout the book of John of Jesus as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And in this passage you have Jesus, God's Son, in human form on earth, right? And you have him speaking of God the Father, and you have him speaking of God the Holy Spirit. Okay? And so, when he, uh, when he teaches on these things, these are, these are things that are new for the Jews in a lot of ways. They had not... Uh, they did not have the, the, the fullness of God's word yet. We have the New Testament and a lot of much more specific teaching on the Trinity, especially in the letters that uh, Paul wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right? So throughout time, you have a progressive revelation of who God is. He's revealing himself to his people more and more clearly, and ultimately, as we read in the New Testament, it, in past times, he had spoken by prophets and by the men of old. But now, in the last days, he spoke by his Son, Jesus Christ. And so there's this, there's this huge change that comes about when God is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ to his people starting with the Jews, and then another huge change that 
his people are not limited to the Jews any longer, but spread that that news is, and his people are called from all the nations. So who God is is, of course, central to our religion, right? And Christianity is certainly a religion. This has come to be a, uh, almost a, a bad word to many people today. But Christianity is certainly a religion, and it is one religion among many. But it is not an equal religion, right? There are many religions. Christianity is one religion, but it is, it is a unique religion, and the reason it is unique is because it is the only one that worships the true God, that proclaims the true God. And so, what is a religion? A religion is just any, uh, how, would you, how would you just, you know, define religion? Any uh, set of teachings, right, that describe for us who God is, that describe for us where we came from. And of course, some religions describe God as actually not a God, but many gods. And then you've got a few religions that say, no, actually, there is only one God. One of those religions is actually, uh, I, would, I would include in that, it, this, is, this is kind of crazy, all right, but I would include in that New Age mysticism. New Age mysticism is actually almost a monotheistic religion because God becomes simply a one all-encompassing force. Okay, and it includes us and everything of creation as part of that God. So, so New Age mysticism, which is really just ancient, old age religion, okay, includes everything, the creation and the creator, and mixes it all together and says it's all just one. Now, in contrast with that, you've got Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, right? And all of those are what are typically called the monotheistic religions. And the difference between those and New Age mysticism is not the fact that there's one God. That's the same. The difference between those three and New Age religion is that those three say God is other. There's God and then there's creation. He's separate from us. So you come to this passage where Jesus is speaking and you realize that what he is saying about himself, what he says about the Father, what he explains about the Holy Spirit is absolutely foundational to what it means to be a Christian. And that's why John includes it in this book. Because what he wants us to know is who Jesus is and what it means for us to believe in him. 
to believe in him as opposed to believing in anybody else as Messiah. To believe in him as opposed to believing in any other religion. Right? Because the foundation of Christianity is that Jesus Christ is God in human form. Now, this gets very complicated very quickly, right? And the reason it gets complicated quickly is because our brains are insufficient for the task set before us if we're seeking to understand God. We are not capable of grasping God. God is other. And yet, here you have the man, Jesus Christ. And what does he say? You've got this beautiful, uh, you've got this beautiful explanation. He's just gotten done telling them, "Judge with righteous judgment," right? And then they don't. They say, "Well, you're from Galilee. We know who you are." And what does he say? Verse twenty-eight. Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, "You both know me and know where I am from." On the one hand, right? And then he follows that up immediately with saying, And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. What you see here is Jesus speaking about his two natures you see him speaking about the fact that he is, yes, fully human. Yeah, you know me. You can interact with me, talk with me as a man. I, I am knowable as a man right now. And yet, I came from heaven. I came from God who you don't know. So you have Jesus speaking of Two completely different things that are going on in himself at the same time and trying to begin to make that clear to the people. And yet, who's able to grasp that? Two natures, fully God and fully man, in the same body, right in front of them. That's hard to fathom, isn't it? More than hard to fathom. And yet, that is, in my opinion, easier to understand than the, than the Trinity. Now, <clears throat> we just got done earlier in the service reciting the Nicene Creed, right? And I mentioned a few weeks ago that uh, the doctrine of the Trinity has been under discussion, very intense discussion recently, among people who are Reformed, biblical Christians. And the reason that it's been under discussion is because there's a debate going on about some of the nature of the Trinity right now. Now you think, hey, wait, 
hasn't the Trinity, hasn't everything that's been, you know, that needs to be said about the Trinity already been said? And of course, the answer in a sense is, well, yeah, I mean, the, the church has been through the work of establishing a, a universal understanding of the Trinity. There are, of course, still groups of people and individuals who reject the Trinity, and that would be to reject who God is, right? And that's why we call uh, wrong teaching on the Trinity, in pretty much any form, a heresy. Because it obliterates the religion. Because it obliterates who God is. And that's very serious, because it means you have a different religion. It means that, as John's focus is, you're believing in somebody else, or you're believing in something else besides the Christ revealed that he wants us to believe in, his goal through writing this letter. And so I want to take some time this morning to talk more about the Trinity. Certainly not exhaustively, because I can't. Not, I don't have time, I can't. We can't speak exhaustively of the Trinity. What we can do is we can speak biblically. And that's the essence of the, uh, the work of the Christian, is conforming your actions and your beliefs to God's word. Now, as soon as I say that, some people out there are going to say, yeah, so why are you using the word Trinity? The word Trinity is never found in the Bible, right? Isn't that extra biblical? And I say, well, yes, the word is extra biblical, but, the, but what we mean when we say Trinity is everything that this book teaches us about who God is. That's what we mean. And, and so you need a word for that. A word that distinguishes from other people who claim to say that, or who claim to worship this this God that's revealed in here, but who have rejected various parts that it teaches us about God. Now, very briefly, The Trinity is one God, not three gods, right? You understand that? This is something that we saw in the... Let me, let me pull this back up here. When, when the Nicene Creed was written, one of the reasons that it was written is because there were all kinds of discussions going on about who God was. And so the reason that the Nicene Creed starts, we believe in one God, is to make clear that that's not the the same thing as believing in three gods, as it then begins to go into explaining who the three persons are that are in the one God. 
You see, because then it talks about one God, the Father Almighty, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. And then skipping all that it says about him, and we believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life. And so, in the Nicene Creed, you have a discussion of who God is and who those three persons are in the one God. Not three gods, but three persons. Today, there's still a group of people, a fairly large group of people, um, oneness Pentecostals being a large portion of that group, who deny the Trinity by saying there's one God and there are three persons. But those three persons are actually just the one God taking different forms at different times. Different modes. Or you might say, uh, you might think of it as different implementations. Taking a different form and saying, well, at this time I'm going to reveal myself as the Son, and I'm going to do this kind of work while I'm the Son, and then I'm going to change back into the Father, and I'm going to do Father work, and then later on I'll do Holy Spirit work. Okay? And this is a heresy because it denies the doctrine of the Trinity. So what are we to learn from this passage about who God is, who the first person, second person, and third person of the Trinity are? Now, when I say first person of the Trinity, and then I say second person of the Trinity, and then I say third person of the Trinity, that that indicates that there is some sort of order in the Trinity. And this is something that we see in the Nicene Creed as well. It starts with the Father intentionally for a reason. And then it speaks of the Son being the only begotten Son of God. Not as though to distinguish the Son as less than God. And then in, the, in speaking of the Holy Spirit again, who proceeds from the Father and the Son? And so there has always been this sort of speaking about the Trinity, of there being order in the Godhead. All right? And there being relationship in the Godhead. Within, between those three persons, there is relationship. And that's one of the things that we see in this passage. We see Jesus the second person of the Trinity, speaking of his relationship with the Father before all time. We see him speaking of his relationship and his work with the Holy Spirit. And so relationship within the Trinity, very importantly, is where our relationships come from. 
okay? When God said, let us make man in our own image, back at the very beginning of the Bible, right? When God said, let us make man in our own image, and then he created male and female, and, and there was relationship there, that flowed out of his own image. The fact that there is relationship between the persons in the Trinity is why there is relationship between us. That's part of being made in God's image. And that only comes about because there is a trinity. Because of who God actually is. Now later on in the book of John, John chapter 16, we read this, starting in verse 7. But I tell you the truth, Jesus is speaking, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. If you've been around for a while, one of the things you know that I often pray is that God, by the Holy Spirit, would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and the judgment. That's where this, that prayer comes from. But when you take that passage, and we'll... We'll have a chance, of course, who knows how long from now, to get to John chapter 16, Lord willing, and preach on that passage. But Jesus doesn't shy away from speaking about the Holy Spirit. Nor does he shy away from discussing the relationship between the persons in the Godhead. You see him say in John 16, if I go, I will send him to you. And all through the book of John, up through chapter 7, where we've already studied, we see him talking about himself as having been sent by the Father. So the Father sends the Son. The Son then returns to the Father, as he promised and told them in this chapter, right, in our passage this morning, and then he says later on, when I do go back, I will send the Holy Spirit. What does this teach us? Well, one of the things that's absolutely inescapable here is that the relationships within the Trinity are a relationship of perfect unity and yet, that those relationships include authority. Despite the fact that all three persons are, of the Trinity are fully God. Now this is the new thing that's, that 
the, the, the new area that's under attack today. And this is where all of the discussion I mentioned is going on. Talking about what it means for there to be uh, perfect unity and simplicity in the Trinity. I'm not going to bother going into why all of this is uh, coming up today <clears throat> and being under discussion, but we cannot miss this in our passage when Jesus says in verse 33, for a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Jesus is speaking all through John of the authority of the Father in sending him. Today, our hatred of authority and our love of equality has led many to reject the possibility of such a relationship in the Godhead. What did I say? Our, our hatred of authority and our love of equality has led many to reject such a relationship in the Godhead. Why? Well, what, we, what we're inclined to think today is that authority automatically means inequality. Authority automatically means something bad is going on. We're inclined to think that authority is something that came about as a result of the fall, rather than as a result of the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and inserted into our world and into our relationships because of the nature of who God is and the fact that he made us in his own image. And so at the, at the center of the debate that, you, that, that, is, that is going on today, you end up having a big discussion about feminism. Why about feminism? Well, because feminism is a denial of and a rejection of the fatherhood of God. It's a hatred of the patriarchy. Okay, well, the patriarchy, as it's spoken of by feminists, is a reference to the, uh, the cultural baggage of the fact of male rule and authority, right? That's what they mean by the patriarchy. And yet, the patriarchy could also be understood most clearly to simply mean the fatherhood of God, as, as opposed to the motherhood of God, 
Do you understand? And so as feminism comes into the church, the hatred of the patriarchy leads to a continuation of the hatred of the patriarchy. And so in the mainline denominations in the PCUSA, you had, you know, a decade ago or so, you had a reimagining of who God is. And there was a whole group of people who decided they were going to start praying to God as mother because it sounded nicer to them. Well, what is that? That's heresy. Why is that heresy? Well, because it's not who God is. It's not who he has revealed himself to be in his word and in his son. Are you tracking with me? And so then... Today you step forward and you begin, to, you begin to talk about the Trinity again and you begin to say, well, there can't be any kind of authority. There can't be any kind of... Sending can't really mean sending in any sort of authoritative sense because that would mean that the second person of the Trinity is somehow submissive to the first person of the Trinity, that would indicate that he's not fully equal with God the Father, that the Son is not fully equal with God the Father. And that would make him not fully God, and that would be a denial of Nicene Trinitarian theology. But where is all of this flowing from? Where, there are a lot of assumptions that are being written into those statements, right? And the primary assumption that I want us to see from our passage today is false, okay? The primary assumption that's false that we've got to get through our minds is that authority automatically means something bad. Authority automatically means a, an inequality that changes our value. Okay? Um, egalitarianism is a big part of the feminist movement. And it is a complete denial of there being any kind of distinctions between people. No, there's no such thing as uh, real differences between people. And the reason that everyone is so adamant today on doing away with any kind of differences is because we're convinced we're so convinced that our value, our worth, flows out of who we are. And as soon as you say anybody is different than anybody else, you've, you've immediately, in everybody's minds, made a value, a worth judgment. And so if I were to be so gauche as to say that somebody in this room was smarter than somebody else in this room, everyone would be offended, right? Wouldn't you all be offended? Well, I mean, 
Why is that so offensive? It's offensive because we think that our self-worth is attached to all of that stuff that inheres in us, right? That who we are. So the color of our skin changes our worth. We, this, is, this is what, ironically, everyone who is so opposed to racism today and making a big deal out of fighting racism actually believes. They actually believe that you have to deny that there's any kind of difference. Because if there is any actual difference, then you've determined that there's different worth. You guys understand what I'm saying? The, the, under, the underlying assumption that we see everywhere around us is that differences in our person all right, end up meaning that there are differences in our worth and in our value. This is what we see rejected in our passage. Because Jesus makes it very clear that there are differences between himself and the Father and the Son. And as soon as I say that, everyone's going to go like, wait a minute, you can't say that, that's anti-Trinitarian, right? There can't be differences. There's this great quote, I I should have printed it out. There's this great quote from Calvin where he's talking about this, and he says, you know, um, basically he says, well, the Son and the Father, you know, the, the Father and the Son and the Spirit are different. But of course, you understand that everything about being God, they all have. Nevertheless, this doesn't mean that you can't say there are no differences. That's basically how he puts it. Well, why do we say that there are differences? Well, we say that there are differences because God the Father eternally begets the Son. Right? And the Spirit flows from both of them. And we say that there are differences because their economic work, their work in salvation is different to each of us. Right? And how can you speak of their economic work being different without talking about there being differences between them? You can't. It's impossible. And this is where our brains just start blowing up. Because, we're like, okay, I mean, I was with you when you said that they're It's one God, three persons. I mean, you can't really understand it, but I've heard that so many times. But then when you start positing things that seem logically contradictory, like they are all fully God with the same will, and then saying that, but the God, the Father sent God the Son, and the Son submitted to the will of the Father by coming, and then the the Son went back, to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit, you can't speak of sending without speaking of authority. 
it's impossible. And authority is the one place where we're sure, even if there's no difference in value based on skin color differences, or based on intelligence, or based on various athletic ability, or based on all of the other places where we're out there to deny that there's any difference. All right? The one place where we're sure there ends up being a difference is in authority. As soon as somebody can tell somebody else what to do, in our minds today, the game is up. If you can tell somebody else what to do, if you're in authority over them, if you can send them, and they have to go, then your value is greater. That is an inequality that we cannot accept in our culture today. And yet, what do we see in our passage? We see Jesus, the second person, the Son, right? Speaking of being sent by the Father, speaking of the perfect oneness that he has with the Father, the the perfect unity that he has with the Spirit, and then speaking of sending the Spirit. And so today... Here's what I want you to see. It's always our temptation to read from ourselves back into God rather than to read from God to ourselves. All right? We are made in the image of God. And then we come to this, we come to our own understanding of what we are like and what our nature is. And today, like I've been saying in our culture, it's that. Any kind of authority is inequality and is bad. And then we say, therefore, and we reason back to God and we say, there cannot be any authority and there cannot be any kind of anything like that in the relationship in the Godhead. Or that would mean that they were unequal and you would have destroyed the Trinity at that point. But it all flows out of that false assumption. So if you hear somebody say that our understanding and our, our, our looking between the relationships in the Godhead, the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and our relationships here on earth is analogical, okay, that's what they mean. That it's that it's not a one-for-one exact picture. And that's correct. But you always have to make sure that you're thinking the right direction. Because if you're thinking the, if you're thinking the wrong direction in your, in your analogies, you'll look at us and then you'll, you'll put it back onto God. And that doesn't work. God came first. He made us in his image. But the other thing that you have to be aware of when you're talking about, when, when somebody starts talking about us and our relationships being analogical to the relationships of the Father, is simply that being a way to dismiss us being made in the image of God and us being able to learn anything from who God is. 
about ourselves. Don't let anybody snooker you with those big words into, into making you think you're dumb and that you shouldn't actually look to God, the Father, and the Son, and their relationship to learn anything about how our relationships should work. Okay? We do learn about ourselves from who God is. Yes, it's analogical. But we do actually learn about ourselves from who he is. And one of the things that we learn here is that being able to say, go, and expecting the person to go, does not make you more valuable than the person that you send. Being sent, being under somebody's authority, in other words, does not make you any less valuable. Now, I keep talking about value and, and our value. Uh, and, I, and I don't really know any other way to talk about it. Um, you could use the word worth. Um, But you've got to keep your ears open in your conversations with people for that underlying assumption. Because when I talk about the value or the worth of somebody, you're not often going to hear those words being spoken. But you are going to hear that underlying assumption being addressed constantly. One of the places that I saw this that was sort of eye-opening to me was when I was volunteering um, for an inner-city tutoring project when I was in college. So we were at an inner-city library tutoring kids who were having trouble in school. And after we were done with some of the tutoring, then there was a story time, and they gathered all the kids in the big room in the upstairs library, and uh, the other college students that had been tutoring were all there, and the, the girl who led this program, who's, who was leading the, got this book, and she started reading it. And the book was um, about how you could, you could capture your dreams, right? You could be anything that you wanted to be. And it was a story about a girl who uh, became an Olympic figure skater, okay? And... I got to looking around the room and looking at all of the kids, and I thought to myself, you know what? This is absolutely absurd. 99% of the people in this room could never, ever, 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 ever become Olympic figure skaters. They do not have the necessary gifts. And even if they have the necessary physical gifts, we're sitting in the inner city where they do not have the gifts of the opportunities necessary. Right? But this does not make them less valuable. 
This is not to speak in any condemning way of them. This is to be realistic, and not in a harsh realistic sort of way, but in a loving realistic sort of way. What does that mean? Well, let's jump for a second back to the Trinity. Would it have worked for the Father to be sent? No. No, it would not have worked. Why do I say it wouldn't have worked? Because we were to be made sons of God. And therefore, the Son had to be sent so that we could be adopted as his co-heirs. The whole plan of salvation is dependent on the Son being sent as opposed to the Spirit or the Father. It matters. And then, the promise that we have here that Jesus makes... He's promising the Jews that depend on him, that put their faith in him, he's promising to send the Holy Spirit so that we will not be left alone when he goes. And in particular, where he goes that we cannot go. What a beautiful gift. This is why he says in in the passage I read from John 16 that it's to our advantage for him to go away. Why? Well, because Jesus, the person in human form, could only be one place at once. And yet when he left, he sent the Spirit who is in all of those who have believed in Jesus Christ all at the same time. What a beautiful gift. And the fact that that Holy Spirit is within us, Jesus describes as from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. That's us. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit within you, and rivers of living water are flowing from you. It doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman. You have the Holy Spirit within you and rivers of living water flowing out of you. It doesn't matter if you are the boss or the employee. This is what is spoken of when it says there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. The Holy Spirit within us is the gift of God. 
Ezekiel 36, 27 says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This is the help that we have from the Holy Spirit if we believe in Jesus Christ, God the Son. You see the difference? Believe in Jesus Christ. And then Luke 11.13 says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Believe in Jesus Christ. Ask the Father for the Spirit, and the Spirit will be within you and will be streams of living water flowing out from you, teaching you to walk in God's statutes, helping you to be careful to observe his ordinances. This is the help we have from the Spirit if we're in Jesus. And so... The Trinity is hard to grasp. But you can't be without the Trinity. You can't have a, one, a oneness Pentecostal view of God that, that obliterates any distinction between the three persons and says it's all just one person acting in different ways. No. It had to be that the Father sent the Son. It had to be for our sake. If we were to be made co-heirs, sons with God, it had to be the Son. And it had to be that when He left, He sent the Holy Spirit with the Father back to us to be in our hearts. Because where would we be without the Holy Spirit in our hearts? We would be disobedient, enslaved to the lusts of our heart. And you say, well, I am disobedient. I'm still disobedient. I guess that means the Holy Spirit's not within me, right? Well, let's stop here. And we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I'll talk more about that. Let's pray.